Today's scripture is 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. George was a kind, responsible, faithful man who came from a small town. George had big dreams. His hope was to travel the world someday, but life had different plans for him. Um, George ended up inheriting his family's business uh, through different circumstances, and so he was kind of tethered. He ended up staying in a small town, but things weren't all that bad. The business was going well. Uh, He found a lovely woman, and he got married. Uh, And by all accounts, George had a pretty good life. Uh, But something happened. One day, George got a call. See, one of his employees had misplaced a large amount of cash on the way to the bank. And George got a call from the bank examiner. And the bank examiner said, we've been looking over the books, and it does not look good. Uh, To us, I don't know how to explain it. It looks like embezzlement. It looks like fraud. You're short a lot here. And George didn't know what to do. See, he had big plans. He ended up tethered to his small town. He did the right thing. He followed through. He was faithful. He was carrying on the family business, the family legacy. But here he was now facing ruin, losing his business, facing jail time. So George went to a place that he knew he could at least numb some of the pain. He went to the bar, and he drank, and he drank. And then George uttered out just a small, insignificant prayer. God, if you're there, I'm not a praying man. But if you're there, I'm at the end of my rope. Will you just show me the way? Show me the way. Now, if that story sounds familiar, maybe it's because you're a fan of classic Christmas cinema. That's the opening of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, But that story might feel familiar for a different reason for you. Maybe that story doesn't feel familiar because you like the movie. Maybe it feels familiar because you have a sense of sitting at the bar with George. You know that feeling of desperation. You know that feeling of being at the end of your rope. Maybe you feel like you're sitting at the bar with George because you've tried everything in your marriage. Just show me the way. Maybe you feel like you're sitting at the bar with George when you think about your job. You've put out applications elsewhere. You never get the call back. I'm at the end of my rope. Maybe you feel like George when you think about the anxiety the depression that's been clouding around you like smog and you can't breathe anymore. See, we have an enemy 
that does press in on us and he wants to force us into a place of desperation. He wants us to feel hopeless and helpless. And some of you might be feeling like you're sitting at the bar, the, the bar with George Bailey this morning. But I hope that as we open up the text this morning and we see that there's a story about a people who are in a desperate position, a people who have nothing left, they're at the end of their rope, and they just utter out the only cry that they know how to. I pray that as we read through this story, we would see that our God is a God who hears those cries. That our God is a God who answers the call of the desperate that our God is a God who delivers. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that you are here among us, that you are in our midst. We know that as we open up your scriptures, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New, that it is inspired by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that it speaks to us today just as it spoke to its original audience. God, we pray that you would meet us here in 1 Samuel and that you would speak to us, and we pray that you would deliver us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, We started a series a few weeks ago looking at the life of Saul and then David and Solomon. That's going to take us through the end of the year. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of our ushers will come down and give you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, please hang on to this one. It is our gift to you. Uh, y también tenemos en español. Si necesita una copia de la Biblia, por favor, levanta la mano y diga español. Uh, si no tiene en su casa, por favor, esto, este es nuestro regalo a usted. Uh, we are in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, but let's recap a little bit where we've been. So the story starts uh, for our series in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We call this series, We Want a King. And it comes from chapter 8 because what happens is the people are experiencing oppression. They're experiencing injustice both at home and their foreign enemies are conquering them. They're battling them. They're winning. Uh, And so the people cry out to their leader, Samuel. They say, we want a king. We're experiencing injustice. We want deliverance, right? Uh, And Samuel is outraged at this request. Absolutely outraged. And as a modern reader, I read it and I think, huh? seems like he should be happy that they want a king. It seems like he should be happy that they want to be delivered from injustice. So why is he so upset? Well, it's all in this phrase, we want a king like the nations have. We want a king like the nations have. See, the nations around Israel have a pantheon of gods that oversee each local territory, right? There's, uh, there's gods of Canaan. There's gods of the Amalekites. There's gods of the Uh, of the Egyptians, right? And those gods have one person who is their mediator between the gods and men. And that person is the king. And the king would be worshiped as a divine leader over the land. He would be like the gods, right? Um, He would be the voice of the gods. He would be God made flesh, so to speak. And so uh, the Israel was not like these other nations. Israel did not have a pantheon, of, a pantheon of gods. Israel had the one true God, the creator of everything, over Israel. They didn't have territorial gods, right? And so they also did not need a king because God himself, the king of creation, was their king. 
So in effect, for them to say, we want a God like the nations, or a king like the nations have, there's, it's like a child looking in his father's eyes and saying, I want a dad. It's a slap in the face. They already have a king. Yahweh is their king, right? And not only that, but to say we want a king who's going to deliver us is to entirely ignore their history. It's to say, you didn't deliver us out of Egypt. You didn't deliver us in the wilderness. You didn't deliver us when we came into the land. It's ignoring and forgetting their history, that God is their king who saves them. So Samuel's outraged, right? But for some reason, God obliges them. He says, sure, let's give them a king, okay? And then the scene cuts to 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we're introduced to a new character. We heard that last week. His name's Saul. And Saul is a, a young, handsome, wealthy, handsome, tall, handsome dude, right? It says it multiple times in the text. It really wants us to know that Saul was good looking. But Saul was just out looking for his dad's donkeys. He's just, he's just trying to find some missing donkeys, right? And somehow his quest for donkeys ends up being the pretext for God's quest for a king. He bumps into Samuel in a town on it, again, looking for the donkeys, and God whispers into Samuel's ear and he says, this is my prince. This is the one I'm looking for. He's the appointed deliverer for my people, Israel. Anoint him. And so Samuel anoints Saul. He takes oil, he pours it on his head. Uh, he, makes, he says, you're going to be set aside by God for a specific task. That task is delivering my people, Israel and you're going to be king. And so they gather all the people together, and on the way to the gathering, Saul is, uh, the, the Spirit of God rushes on Saul. And it says in the text that he becomes a new man, that God changes his heart. And they gather the people together to proclaim this new king, Saul, in chapter 10. And then they say, okay, it's Saul. Saul? Saul? Where are you at, Saul? Has anybody seen Saul? Is he in the bathroom? And it turns out Saul is cowering. He is hiding behind the bags, just like Adam is hiding in the bushes when God is looking for him, right? Saul, where are you? So they pull Saul out and they put him on stage. And some people say, long live the king. And then some people say, this dude, did we get this right? This, this guy, the guy who is hiding in the bags, can this guy save us? And so that's where chapter 10 ends. Can this guy save us? So we pick up, there's another scene cut in chapter 11. We pick up right where we left off. And this story unfolds for us in three chapters. The desperate request, the spirit's rescue, and the people's response. Okay, so we're going to start with the desperate request. Look with me at 1 Samuel 11, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So here we find the scene again, it jumps, it cuts. We find one of the kings of the nations. Remember, what kind of king do they want? a king like the kings of the nations. We find one of them here, Nahash the Ammonite, and he is on an absolute terror campaign in Israel. 
We find out from some historical readings that he's been going throughout Israel in the northern areas, and he has been dominating in battle, and he has been gouging out the right eyes of the men that he conquers. This is an old uh, ancient Near Eastern way to say, I own you. You are my slave. You will never fight in battle again. So he's winning all these campaigns. And what's happened is all the people of Israel now in the north have retreated to this stronghold called Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead is a town that is most famous in Judges for being the town that did not come to Israel's aid when they needed it. They ignored the call for help, okay? So they are holed up, locked in at Jabesh Gilead, and now they're in a desperate position, so desperate that what they request, it says, is a treaty, but the word is covenant. They've requested a covenant with a king of the nations, They said, we will serve you. We will become your servants. But Nahash is not satisfied with that. He wants to push it further. He wants them to be slaves, not servants. He wants all of Israel under his rule. He wants to bring shame and dishonor to the people. Now, to understand how devastating this would be, we have to remember Israel's story. Remember, Israel was in Egypt under the rule of a foreign oppressor, and they were slaves. And God delivered them out of Egypt into a covenant with himself. Well, now the exact opposite is happening. They are offering themselves in a covenant to a foreign king in order to return to slavery. Israel is coming undone. The story is coming undone. And the people are desperate. They ask for one week, just one week respite. Now, They don't have cars. (laughs) They don't have radios. There's no way to broadcast this. The internet doesn't exist, right? So seven days to go throughout the entire nation on foot to rally an army that will support them. Nahash feels pretty confident, right? He feels pretty confident. There is no way that they're going to use that week well. And so he says, sure, you can have a week. There's not a lot of hope. And we read in verse 4, that when the messengers came to Gebeah, Saul's town, that they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. They weep. That's their response to this news. This is Saul's town. Remember, he's the proclaimed king. He's the one who's changed by the power of the spirit. They weep. And they said, I know that you're out there this morning too. We've met with you. We've prayed with folks. We know that there's some heavy stuff landing on people right now. Losses, deaths in the family, miscarriages. Folks here are walking through dark valleys of depression. Folks here are oppressed economically. We know you're here. We know that the enemy has pinned you into a corner this morning with your anxiety, with the lies that you believe about yourself, about your spouse, about your family, about your God. I know you're here and I know that maybe you've given up hope like these folks who just weep. Maybe you're wondering if there is any hope that help is on the way. And the only response you have left is crying. 
the people weep loudly. And whether that's intended as a prayer to God or an act of hopelessness, it is received by God as prayer. And God is moved to action on behalf of his people. Part two is the Spirit's rescue. Look with me, if you would, at verse five. It says this, Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Saul went back to farming. He just went back to ranching, right? And Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. So Saul goes back to farming. He's back to tending the oxen when he hears the news because he hears how loud people are crying. They're just weeping in the streets, right? And so he hears it and he says, what's all this ruckus about? And he shows up and it says in verse six that the spirit of God rushes on Saul and it moves him to great anger. Huh? If Saul were filled with the spirit, shouldn't he just like given those crying people hugs, right? Shouldn't he have had some like Bible memory verses that he gave to him? No? Maybe he should, have, uh, he should have just said, oh, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this, right? It says in the text that Saul is moved to anger. And in fact, it says his anger is greatly kindled, like throwing kindling on a fire. He does this in the power of the Spirit. And I have a tendency, maybe you do too, to believe that the being Spirit-filled and being angry are mutually exclusive things, right? You can't be angry and be Spirit-filled, that if we're truly spirit-filled, we'll just be happy, we'll be kind. Uh, But God is always angry at injustice. God is always outraged at oppression. Always. He cannot help but move Saul to anger because he witnesses the cries of desperation coming from his people. And if we're truly spirit-filled, like Saul in this moment, we cannot help but be outraged when our brothers and our sisters in Christ are experiencing attack from the enemy. Amen? We cannot help but be outraged. But the, the Spirit, fortunately, does not leave it at anger. The Spirit moves Saul to bold, courageous, decisive action to correct the injustice. He doesn't just leave it at outrage. He does something in the power of the Spirit. He takes some of the oxen that he's tending to, and it says in the text that he cuts them up, and he sends them out to the different tribes of Israel, essentially saying, come help. Come help our brothers and sisters, or you'll end up like this ox, right? And the people of God respond And they respond in numbers, huge numbers. It says that 300,000 show up from Israel and 30,000 from Judah. And they overwhelm the armies of Nahash. They completely overtake them. The people of God are delivered. The Spirit of God is in the business of delivering his people. He did that then and he does it today. Maybe you feel like God cannot deliver whatever you're going through. He can't deliver you from it. Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, 
I met uh, two older students at a community college. And these students, uh, they came together. I assumed they were a couple. Uh, they were there taking credits for kind of job training or something. Um, they were late 20s, early 30s. And through the course of some conversation, I realized that they were both married but not to each other and that they were actually having an affair. And we started talking through things. We started meeting individually with these uh, folks. And we started to see that the Spirit of God was doing something in both of their lives. They, they put their faith in Christ. And things started to change for them. They were moved to break off their affair and to reconcile with their spouses. And what was surely going to end in divorce for both of them ended in reconciliation. They were brought back together. And these two couples now are plugged into a local congregation. They're in community. They're serving. The Spirit of God can and does still deliver from whatever desperate situation you're in now. He wants to do that in you. And the amazing thing is that he uses human beings to do that. We see in the text that he uses Saul, a scared farmer, to deliver God's people. That he uses 300,000 men who show up. They just show up for the deliverance of God's people. And he still wants to use you today by the power of the Spirit in delivering others. Maybe you feel like you can't do it. You can't, you can't possibly help deliver someone. You can't possibly minister to somebody else. You and I are broken vessels just like Saul. All we need to do is yield to the Holy Spirit and let him do the work. He's the one working, not you. God delivered his people then in a miraculous way. He is delivering people now in a miraculous way, and he wants to use you to be a part of that deliverance and rescue plan. Amen? So the people are delivered from the hand of their enemy through the mighty work of the Holy Spirit, through normal people and normal means, and now we get to see the people's response. Look with me, if you would, at verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said Saul shall reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. See, the, the people who were Saul's uh, biggest his biggest fans to start with, the people who were the original believers in Saul, they say, we got receipts. We took screenshots, right? We know who the haters were, right? We want you to pull them out and we are ready to cancel them permanently. We're ready to be done with them. But the spirit-filled way is different from the way of the world. Saul opts for mercy, for these people who are his opponents. And listen, he was in the position of power. He was in the right. He was righteous in this moment. He could have, he could have carried that through. But the spirit-filled way moves men and women to mercy, not revenge. He doesn't even take credit for the victory, in fact. Do you see what it says? It says that the Lord has won the victory. Saul doesn't bask in the glory of this. 
God was the one who heard the people's cries for salvation. God was the one who emboldened Saul. God was the one who had the plan. God was the one who rallied the people. God was the one who delivered Israel, not Saul. So he gives God the credit. And Samuel then starts a big party. Look what it says in verse 14. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Now Gilgal is repeated three times. Did you notice that? The author wants us to see that they're going to Gilgal. It is very important. It's like a double click. It's a triple click, right? Pay attention. Why Gilgal? Well, Gilgal is the place where the people of Israel first encamped after God brought them through Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, brought them into the land. It is a reminder for all generations of God's faithfulness, God's deliverance. And they set up stones to remind them. They set up a physical monument to the mighty acts of God to deliver them from their enemies. And so they see that place as a place of significance, a place to renew their commitment to the God who saves. So it's appropriate that they go to Gilgal. That's where they go. And that's where they enthrone a king in the midst of the monument to the Lord's faithfulness and victories. And the text concludes this section by saying, there they sacrificed peace offerings and Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, the different types of sacrifices in Leviticus and in the Old Testament, it, it's confusing sometimes. Like what's what are they for? What are the different ones? Uh, when do you offer a certain sacrifice? So if you're confused by that, you're in good company. I was too. I had to read through this. Um, but this, the peace offering is sometimes called the fellowship offering. The appropriate time to sacrifice animals for a peace offering is when two parties, individuals or families, etc., cetera, uh, have been feuding and now they're reconciling and reuniting. And so the two different families then would bring the animals and they would bring big animals, animals like sheep and cows, because this sacrifice wasn't one that was going to be burned up on the altar. It's not one that was going to be left for the priests to eat. No, this one was going to be a barbecue. (laughs) This one was going to be a huge feast for all the people. And not just for the people who could bring the meat. This would be a feast for the poor who could not afford to bring the meat as well. Poor and rich came to this table together. And so when we read that they sacrificed a peace offering, we see that the spirit of God is not done working his miracles. He has one more miracle he's gonna work out. He is going to bring people who were so opposed to one another that they were ready to kill each other just moments earlier and he is gonna bring them back together. See, there's a progressive political party here that wants a new system entirely. They say, we hate this old system. We want a monarchy. We want a king. And there is an old system who supports the judges. They support Samuel. They say, the way we had it before was good. I don't know why we're messing with this. And they were so antagonistic towards one another that they wanted to kill each other. But here they offer the peace sacrifice, a meal. And they eat it together. God has united these two factions with the blood of the sacrifice. God has brought them together to feast at the same table. They're partaking of the meal that that sacrifice produced. 
And it says that the people rejoice greatly. We're reading about a worship service here. We're reading about a worship service. See, they gathered people together in a place with a physical reminder of God's faithfulness and deliverance, a physical statue to remind them of how God had delivered them, a place where they would pray together for a new kingdom to come and that it would be just like God's kingdom in heaven here on earth. And there they enthroned a king, a savior, a deliverer who brought them out of the hands of the enemy. They came together to a table for a meal, despite their differences, united in the blood of the sacrifice. They feasted together and it brought peace. They sang. I'd like to imagine that they danced. They rejoiced. They worshiped their God. And that was the proper response for them in light of God's victory. And folks, it is the proper response for us today in light of God's victory. It is our proper response today. You see, we were oppressed by an enemy, a Nahash. And unlike Nahash, who only terrorized God's people for a few weeks, the enemy of sin and Satan and death has been terrorizing humanity since the beginning. It's left us broken, helpless, hopeless. But God, but God has heard our weeping. God has appointed a man, a prince, a king, a deliverer. He put his Holy Spirit on Jesus of Nazareth, who did not hide behind the bags, folks. He did not go back to farming. He came boldly and courageously from heaven to save his people. He called for people to follow him. And unlike Saul's threat of force, his call is always an uncoerced invitation. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden. 330,000 came out to follow Saul that day. Folks, billions of people, billions of people are called by the name of Christ today. Billions. Saul led his people to victory that day easily, but Jesus took a harder route on his day. He knew that victory over sin and death would come at the cost of his own life. And Jesus was willing to pay that cost that we might be freed finally and fully from the oppression of the enemy. So the people respond by reconciling with one another. How about you here this morning? Is there someone here that you need to reconcile with before you come to the feast? The people respond with a meal that comes from a great sacrifice. The table's set for you. It's Jesus' body given for you. It's the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The people respond with loud singing and with rejoicing. They respond by enthroning the true king. How will you respond to the good news of our true king this morning? Let's pray.
Jesus, we praise you that you are a better Saul, that you are a better king, that you're a better peace sacrifice, that your sacrifice was effective for every generation, that it's effective for us now. We praise you, King Jesus, that you are sitting enthroned over heaven and earth, over all the creation, and that you hear our cries even from up there, that you hear the desperation and that you are still delivering by the power of your spirit. God, we pray for those in this room who desperately need you to come through. Will you do something in their hearts and their lives this morning? God, we pray for those who are embattled against their enemies here, who have considered their brothers and sisters in Christ to be antagonists. We pray that you will work a miracle here, that you will unite people who are so different, bring them together by the blood of your sacrifice, Jesus. We enthrone you now and we worship you now with rejoicing and singing and a feast. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.